And our sermon passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. Hear the word of the Lord. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, your word which you promised will not return void. I pray that you would use your word to work in us, to stir in us a love and devotion for you and for the things of God, that you would invite us and send us and hold us and keep us on the way that is the way of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, when uh, Jen and I first got married, one of the things we would love to do when we managed to finally get our kids to, to, to sleep was we would love to watch home renovation shows. You know, and all, all the shows and the house hunters and all of them, all the derivative shows are all basically the same thing and they make lots of money because they're enjoyable. At least I, we found them so. And, uh, you know, you know what? they all have the same formula where they... You know, they get this house and they need to fix it up and they build up the anticipation. They let you see snippets of the work that they're doing on this house. And then the final scene, you kind of wait for it. It's a big reveal, right? Where the people walk into the house and they see it finished for the first time. And, you know, they're in disbelief. They're stunned. And and who knows if what we're seeing on TV is actually real or not. But we enjoy it. We love it all the same. And, uh, we, and we love the, the joy that it brings when something's unveiled, right? You see the joy of the family and you wish, man, I wish my house would look like that. And it's, and it's this beautiful moment. And uh, we're experiencing a moment like that in our passage where we're going to see the unveiling, an unveiling of Christ. This morning we get to see the unveiling of who Jesus is, actually. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's been glimpses where he showed his, his power. And the disciples have even said, you're the Messiah, but they've been told to keep quiet. But this morning, something different has happened. Uh, this morning, the, the true identity of, Messiah, of the Messiah is proclaimed, and it's not silenced. This morning, Jesus stops concealing his I- identity. His time has come. I think we often think of the passage that comes after this as the unveiling of who Jesus is, but actually it begins here in this Story, And it's uh, an unexpected character that actually unveils who Jesus is before the people. It isn't the disciples. It isn't uh, some king or, or dignitary. It's actually the lowest of the low. 
Someone as needy as an infant, as lowly as a slave, it's a blind beggar. In this, Jesus has someone that sums up his teaching last week on true greatness on display for us. You want to be great. You want to be rich. You want eternal life. You want glory. Behold, this is greatness. What makes this man great? It's that he actually sees who Jesus is and he believes. So as we dive into this, let's just remember real quick where we are in this story, right? Jesus is about to enter his final week of his life. Right, He has been heading back to Jerusalem for a while now and is now almost there. This is his final stop before he reaches Jerusalem. Right after this passage, we're going to talk about next week, we have the triumphal entry into the city where he comes into the city as the king. But before that crowning jewel moment, a moment we celebrate with palm branches and a procession, we have this very interesting story of a blind beggar. Right? And this is actually the last story of any healing in the Gospel of Mark. And as we walk through this passage, I think we're, we're going to approach it a little differently than I normal, normally do. We're, we're not going to have a, a two or three points. We're just going to walk through the text simply, basically asking two questions. What is happening and why it matters? So it'll be a little different, but I think the story lends itself well to just walking through this short narrative to see what's happening and what it means for us. So first, what's, what's happening here? Well, let's begin here in verse 46. It says, They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So here again, we find some typical things that we've been used to seeing. Right? There's a great crowd. A bunch of people are following, walking with Jesus. Jericho is not the same Jericho as it is in the, in the, in the Old Testament that uh, was taken by the Israelites, you know, walking around the, the, the city. Uh, this is a different place, uh, and it's kind of a, a pit stop of, of, of sorts for travelers. There's where people would rest on their journey, replenish their water, and head back towards their final destination. And uh, so that, that, that part's all kind of normal, but then an odd detail is actually pointed out to us. It says it names the blind beggar. It gives him a name. And what's interesting about this is this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that, that the person who's healed is actually named for us. And so it draws, so our attention as a reader is immediately drawn towards this man. And you know, when you have a name for somebody, they, they automatically become familiar to you. And we don't exactly know why he is named, but in, in reading about this, I think at least uh, one good option is that it's because he was likely part of the early church, meaning that he was a, a known person to the community of God. So Peter, right, whose testimony gave us the gospel of Mark, uh, he likely knew who this man was. He was a known person. He wasn't some random person getting healed, but he was a specific one. They know this man. They probably even heard his testimony of this particular moment before. And now we're reading about this. And it says that he was sitting by the roadside, right? He was used to travelers coming through. It was a busy road. It was near Jerusalem. So this made a good spot to collect money, right? You don't go sit in country roads to collect money if you're a beggar, right? You go to the, the intersections where there's lots of people. And then verse 47, we see this happen. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? He heard Jesus of Nazareth was in the crowd walking by. He heard that this crowd had this particular man, and clearly he had heard of Jesus before. He heard it probably by people passing by that had told stories about him. He probably heard of the miracles and he says something very strange. It should stand out to us. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
Well, why does Jesus say that? What does, what does that mean? Well, it's because it, it's the only time someone calls Jesus uh, son of David in the Gospel of Mark. So what's, what does this mean? Well, the, this blind beggar is actually speaking Old Testament language. And it is clearly, he is clearly familiar with the Old Testament covenants and the, and the prophecies of the Old Testament. I imagine he was probably an extremely good listener because he couldn't see. He probably had like, you know, superhero level hearing. And when people stopped there to rest uh, in Jericho, he heard people telling stories, reading the Old Testament, teaching about the covenants. And so he, he knew the words of the Old Testament. And this designation he uses, right, he calls him son of David, is a reference back to the, the covenant that God made with David. Just listen to this. This is uh, in, in 2 Samuel 7. This is what God says to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So one of the messianic expectations, one of the expectations for the Messiah that would come and save them, uh, that one of the expectations that we've been talking about is that this Messiah would be David's son, right? The son of David suggests that Jesus is a fulfillment of this covenant promise. This guy knows that Jesus is coming uh, to fulfill this promise from 2 Samuel 7. He's, he's making that connection for us. This is the guy whose kingdom will be forever. And the, the, the prophets actually pick up on this truth. And they also talk about the Messiah as being the son of David. And one instance of this is Isaiah 9, which we're used to this text being used for Advent, right? The coming of Jesus. But I think it works both ways. So just, just a couple verses here in, in Isaiah 9. Listen to this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given... And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so you have the son of David designation again. And so to say someone's the son of David, you're saying you are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the King of Kings. And for any Jewish person hearing him, they would have immediately understood that he was calling Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world. So what's happening here for us is that the blind man can actually see. And this is where this passage begins to drip with, with irony for us. And what does he see? He sees Jesus as he truly is. Not as just the son of Nazareth, but as the son of David, Messiah, king of kings, lord of lords, have mercy on me. He knows Right, that the king is the only one who can grant him the mercy he so desperately needs and longs for. And in the midst of him saying this profound thing, son of David, which should have been like a knife through butter, just cutting through those words. Uh, this is something that should have made everyone that's around him actually stand in awe and join him. Uh, we actually end up finding the true blind people in the story here in verse 48. It says, many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So the interesting response of the crowd around him, right? The blind man is saying, you're the Son of David, you're the Messiah. And they say, shut up, right? Stop it. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. Remember your status, beggar. Right off the, off the heels of what Jesus was just teaching about you know, being a, a servant and a, and a slave to all, uh, this is an interesting response by these people. 
They're quick to quiet this man. Why? Well, there's probably several reasons for this. For one, culturally, it would have been inappropriate for him to, 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 to interrupt Jesus. Status-wise, the, the blind beggar would have been expected to be silent in front of a rabbi. Also, it was an interruption for the people. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the way the disciples responded to the mothers that were bringing children to Jesus. Right? They're thinking, we're doing more important things. We're talking to the Messiah. Don't interrupt us. We don't have time for you. We're going to Jerusalem. Don't you know where we're going? Right? Don't you know what we're about to do? Be quiet. And in this, I think the crowd exposes themselves as the true blind ones. They really should be joining his cry. And instead, they try to silence him. The blind man sees more clearly than they do. But they can't shut him. Right? He knows who Jesus is. He sees it and he proclaims it all the louder. He is persistent. And this is one thing about faith, right? Faith is confident and persistent. And we see this pick up again here in verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called. And the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. Jesus stops. We could probably spend the entire time here just reflecting on this profound truth that Jesus hears the cry of the poor, right? He hears the, this man cry out and he stops. Jesus, the creator, the sustainer of all things, is not too busy to stop to hear this man. Jesus doesn't silence the cries of the poor, but he stops and he hears them. And for the first time, he doesn't silence someone that's sharing publicly about his true identity. Until now, right, the disciples have had to stay quiet about his true identity, but it is now time for him to be revealed. His time has now come. And to be revealed means to be seen. He is revealed and seen by this blind man. This is important because what does the Messiah do? But he has actually come to make the blind see. And Jesus' next response is a little bit strange and also telling for what's going on in this story. Normally, Jesus actually goes up to the person. Maybe he touches them or does something strange like spitting on them or something. But he doesn't do any of that stuff here. He actually tells those around him to go to him. Right? He says, says, call him. Why does he do this? Well, I think there's something subtle, but actually really important for us happening here in this, in this moment. Jesus invites the people around him into his work. And it's, it is in the, the doing that our hearts are often changed. Right? He wants them to see this man as he does. He wants them to also stop and to notice the needy. And so he invites them into his work. This is in some ways the greater miracle here. Hearts being transformed. Right there, the blind ones having the veil removed. And it seems like it works because of what they say to this man. They listen to Jesus and it says they, they encouraged him. Take heart, which is to be encouraged. Right? Get up. He is calling you. He noticed you. Be encouraged. And so now, at this point, not only right, does Jesus stop and see this man in great need, but now the crowd also sees him too. Jesus stops for the needy. And I love this blind man's response here in verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. This, this man who has nothing, when Jesus bids him come, he throws off his cloak, which would have likely been all that he owned. It was his bed. It was his blanket. It was where he collected money. He threw it off without care and came to Jesus immediately, likely running to him in just his undergarments, which 
kind of for me echoes of, has echoes of David, right? Dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, undignified, almost naked. This man has no dignity but Jesus himself. And Jesus responds to this by asking a curious question. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What a curious question. Doesn't Jesus know what he wants? He's blind. Of course he wants to see. Clearly he wants to see. But for those of you who were here last week, you might remember this question, right? It is, it is the exact question that Jesus asked his disciples when they came to him, right? Do you remember what James and John asked for when Jesus asked this to them? Give me seats of glory, they asked for. I want to sit on your left and on your right. I want to be great. And what does this man ask for? He says, Rabbi, which means my teacher, my, my master. He's affectionate. Let me see. I don't need glory. I don't need money. Please let me see. And Jesus gives him a chance to speak. Jesus, the son of David, wants to hear from this man. Jesus exalts the humble and humbles the proud. And in verse 52, we find the result, right? And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So now we get the resolution. The blind man is healed simply by the power of Christ's word, right? He is who the blind man said he was. He just proved it by his power. Son of David, doing son of David things. Jesus doesn't just carry this title, but he proves it by his power and his authority. But notice the subtlety happening here again. Jesus says, go your way. And he means it. He's likely saying, listen, you've been healed. Go live your life. Enjoy your life. Enjoy the sight you now have. But what does he do? He says he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Right? He doesn't want to just go on his own way. He wants to follow Jesus on the way, the way of Christ, the way to Jerusalem, which is the way of suffering, which is the way of the cross. This man doesn't want to go his own way. He knows that the only way worth going is the way that follows Jesus. And with his newfound sight, he can now follow him. And this is the irony of the story, right? That it takes a, a blind man to remove the veil of the identity of Jesus. Where once the, Jesus told his disciples to keep his identity quiet, now he is saying the time has come. A blind man is leading the way. This is echoes of Isaiah 35, which reads this of the coming time of the Messiah. It says this, that then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What Jesus is saying is the messianic age is upon us. Right? This new covenant in Christ is, is here. All the covenants in the Old Testament find their end, their yes and amen in Jesus. This is the moment that is here. The blind can see. Right? The lame can walk. This is physical, but it's also spiritual as well. And this is a, a metaphor for the, the nation of Israel. They have been blind. They have been lame. They have been mute. And now he has come to heal them. Their king is finally here. And there's healing in his wings. And a blind man is leading the unveiling party. This profound moment that gives us a glimpse into God's kingdom and what to expect. So what does this mean for us? What does this matter for us? I think there's a couple aspects of this story that are really important for us. 
First and foremost, we are to see the kind of king that we have in Jesus' love. His love for the needy. And we're, we're to rest in it. Right? He hears the cry of the poor. He has come to heal the sick. As Paul writes in 1 Timothy, he has actually come to save sinners. To make the blind see. To give barren women children. Jesus sees those in need. And this also means for us to be needy is good. Being poor of spirit is blessed because this means he hears your cries. He sees your tears, right? Those pains that nobody else knows that you carry. That you cry out in the middle of the night for. Jesus hears them. He sees you. And he bids you to come to him to the place of healing. Be encouraged. Take heart. The Messiah sees you. He takes notice of you because he is good. Because this is what he has come to do. This is what good kings do. They see their people. They know their pains and they work on their behalf. And this is what Jesus does for us. Right? As he lays his life down on your behalf. Taking all the weight of the, your sin and the effects of sin in the world on himself. All the pains and sufferings that you might have life in him. Jesus reminds us that being needy is good. It is a culmination of all that we've talked about in chapter 10. To be needy is to be great. It means you're ready to see. And so our first call is to rest in Jesus, in his work, in us, on our behalf. And I think second, as we rest, we're called to follow Christ. Right? If, if true rest, if true peace is, is seen, right, if, which is faith, if faith comes from, from Christ, then we are called to follow him on the way. So that we might never lose sight of him. And this is what the call of discipleship is, isn't it? Right? Following Jesus on the way, having Christ formed in us, seeking to walk in faith day by day, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is what we're trying to do. This is the powerful work that Jesus is doing inside of us, right? Transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And as he does this transformative work, as he grows his likeness inside of us, he calls us into this work. This is kind of beautiful aside in this moment that just like he calls the crowd into his work, he calls us into the work. And this is actually one of the primary ways that we see our faith grown. And as we, uh, the primary ways that we follow Jesus is by being called into his work. You know, our mission statement, even as a church, is to bring people to Jesus, to make Jesus known. And this is what you see here, the crowd bringing the blind man to the person who can heal them. And this act changed them. Right, in joining the, the work of Christ, they were transformed. And this happens for us too. It helps our faith become sight when we actually step out in faith. This is where we actually begin to see our faith. Right, just like the blind man saw the object of his faith in Christ here at the end, this is what we're called to. Right, not just inner transformation, but that inner transformation will lead to outer transformation. Where we will go into the world that others might be healed too. And this is the kind of work that we are called to in our daily Lives. This is the work we're called to as a church, as a community of God, to help others experience the rest that we have, to help others experience the healing that comes only from Jesus, not from our striving, not from our, uh, our works, but from Christ alone. May we be a people who rest in the profound love of Jesus. May we be a people who rest, and as we rest in him, may we never lose sight of him, May we follow him knowing that there's no greater joy or glory in all the world than following Jesus, even when, and especially when, 
that means that we follow him on the way of suffering. Because we can endure all things because Christ didn't just go before us, but he goes with us. Living inside of us, empowering us, strengthening us on the way of Christ, which is the way of life. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are our way. I pray that you would strengthen our ability to follow you on this way. Help us to never lose sight of you. Help us to chase after you with all that we are. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.